amidst all these documents, I actually found this old piece of construction paper. It's orange and it's written on in marker. And my mother actually, it was an interview she created for me when I must've been, I don't know, maybe two or three on it. It says, so it's in her handwriting. And the first question is, what is adoption? And my answer is, it's when you go to the airport, get in an airplane, drive to the airport, find a new mother and have a new mother and keep her forever. Welcome to Sema, a podcast on loss, grief, and healing. My name is CL Young, and in this episode, I talk with writer, editor, and teacher Aaron Rosemaker. In our conversation, Aaron Rose and I discuss the unknowingness and ambiguous loss associated with adoption and parental estrangement, the interplay between potentiality and failure, and the challenge of writing into different temporal states. Midway through the episode, Aaron Rose mentions a correspondence she had with poet and artist Mary Kim Arnold. You can find a link to their exchange in the notes. Erin Rose Mager was born in and adopted from Korea. She is a doctoral candidate in literary arts at the University of Denver and is working on a full-length collection. She currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. As always, please be careful with yourself when choosing to take in any media, including this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Korean-American adoptee, and I have lived most of my life in the United States, but I was born in South Korea, in Daejeon, the Daejeon province, um, as far as I know, and I was adopted when I was four months old, and I am in zero contact with my birth parents. And I have an interesting relationship to my own adoption archive, I suppose, because through a kind of bizarre series of events when my parents were going through the adoption process, my adoptive father, who has since passed, uh, got his hands on my original adoption file. So I actually know my birth parents' names but uh, Korean names are difficult insofar as they are often common. I mean, there are obviously less common names, but it's difficult to kind of just look someone up in a directory. And it's likewise difficult to kind of contact a Korean embassy and get in touch with your birth parents. A lot of transnational adoptions in the 80s and 90s were closed adoptions. Um, so, you know, there are many disclosures prohibiting the contact between uh, adopted Korean people and their birth parents. 
so thus far I've been unsuccessful in my attempting to reach at least my birth mother, though I started the process a few years ago of attempting to get in touch with her by way of my original adoption agency. And so far, uh, though they kind of sent an initial letter of inquiry uh, and delivered, I guess, uh, this letter to my birth mother's listed address, I have not heard back yet. Um, And normally in these processes, at least today, the primary means of attempted communication is by way of the birth mother and not the birth father. Um, So I don't know, you know, what means I have at my disposal to attempt to contact other people in my uh, biological family. So right now I'm kind of in a weird state of suspension, I suppose. Um, And, you know, I actually, prior to the pandemic, just to kind of date this, uh, I had preliminary plans to attempt to go to Korea um, at the very best to try to get in touch with my birth family and more realistically to at least uh, go back to Korea and experience it for the first time as an adult. And then those attempts were thwarted, um, which was kind of at once, of course, very sad, but in another way, a bit of a relief because I think while I've made good faith efforts to try to plan a trip back to Korea, I also still feel a considerable amount of anxiety about it. So I think that now that though obviously the pandemic isn't over where there feels now that there feels like there's in some way a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of travel restrictions, uh, I need to kind of really sit with the idea of actually making that trip um, in a real way. I was raised in a very mid-Atlantic, democratic, Irish, Catholic households, um, full of laughter and love. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it did, I do not feel as though my adoptive family in any way, um, prevents me from getting in touch with my Koreanness, whatever that means for Korean Americans and, transracial slash transnational adoptees. Um, But it is something that I've thought a lot more about as I've grown older, um, both just as a person and also as a writer. And um, so that's kind of one aspect of things. And then the other aspect of uh, my background is my adoptive father uh, died in 2017 Um, just, uh, it was the summer just prior to my moving to Denver. So just a few months, really maybe a month and a half prior to my moving to Denver. Um, and before that time, he and I had been largely estranged. So, uh, my adoptive parents actually got a divorce when I was three. So I was raised by just my adoptive mother. Oh, wow. Um, and you know, he and I periodically were in touch uh, throughout my childhood, but at around age 10, I think we stopped phone calls altogether. And I saw him once at my adoptive 
uncle's paternal uncle's funeral um but hadn't seen him since then and then um got the news that my father was very ill with kind of terminal stage uh heart failure and had planned to take a trip down to North Carolina to see him um kind of for a final time that summer but he died before I was able to go so um I think that maybe kind of conclusively though there's nothing neat about this I do think that uh there's a lot of lack of conclusion in my life surrounding loss, I suppose. Um, and I do in a weird way, at least uh, thematically, though that's not quite the right word, but thematically I do kind of link my estranged relationship to my adoptive father with my, of course, unknown um, relationship with my birth parents and my birth family, because there is a lot of unknowns there. And even though my adoptive father was, um, known, I guess, ostensibly to me, there are a lot of aspects of his personhood I still have questions about. And, you know, his death and that loss has felt weirdly part and parcel of my birth parent search. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a lot, actually, of what I write about um in my work and uh i'm actually reminded of the episode in which you speak with rushi about his saying something along the lines of you know it's just something that he just finds himself continually returning to in his work and i feel very similarly um that i try to write about something else ostensibly <laughs> and it's just like this infinite return I just can't I can't get away from it um and it's frustrating actually but I also think that I am I know myself well enough and know how intractable I am in my own aesthetics and inclinations that I just kind of at a certain point have to give up and lean into whatever inclinations I have so um, maybe one day there will be a diversification of uh, <laughs> topical matter that <laughs> occupies whatever I write. But for the time being, I do feel like a lot of my writing is concerned with various iterations of parental estrangement and loss. Yeah. So the delaying or sort of cancellation of the trip you had planned yeah. for this past fall I guess I'm wondering what it feels like for you, as you kind of alluded to, to like review that plan a little bit for yourself and like what that reveals about your desire to do that or how you really feel about that or that regarding or like in relation to your own well-being. I think that when it comes to a trip to Korea and when it comes to an attempt to connect with my birth family. I find the locus of my hesitation somewhere in the notion that the probability that my search will be a failure is high. Mm -hmm. 
So statistically, it is unlikely that I will find and have some kind of happy reunion with my birth parents. Um, And while, of course, there are myriad success stories and, you know, I have spoken with other Korean-American adoptees who have reunited with their birth parents or birth family um, in some respect, those stories are relatively rare. And even if I am able to get in touch with, say, my birth mother, the likelihood that she will not want communication with me in whatever way is also high. Um, and I think that that foregrounding of potential failure is something that makes me more hesitant to think about the process to begin with. And then I think that the pandemic added this element of, um, thinking a lot more about parental mortality and the thought that, you know, I don't even really know that my birth parents are alive. They were both 22 uh, when I was born. So they are relatively young right now if they're alive, but there's always the haunting possibility in my brain that one or both of them have already died. Um, And then, you know, of course, early on in the pandemic and thinking about just this completely incomprehensible death happening both here and all over the world kind of uh, brought that to the fore, I think, a bit more in a way that I hadn't really been thinking about um, in a while. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I... I do think that my relationship to the notion of travel um, and specifically a trip that is so deeply meaningful and potentially painful to me is very much inflected by this worry um, and not just worry, but almost kind of preemptive acceptance that in some way the trip will fail. Um, And So I think that also I just haven't really, I don't want to say that I haven't put in the work, but I'm still currently putting in the work of thinking about what it means to fail or whether I ought to kind of reroute my expectations to be less about uh, success and failure and more about what kind of dynamic and strange and enlivening experience it will be to be in a place that is in very few but in very important ways mine (laughs) um you know I still have such a complicated relationship to Koreanness obviously and I for whatever reason I'm thinking about a few weeks after moving to Denver, I went to the H Mart and I walked around and it doesn't feel strange or alienating to me in many ways. I mean, uh, you know, I 
love Asian grocery stores. Um, (laughs) But there is something that is continually kind of odd or uncanny about walking around in a space predominantly non-white surrounded by people who look, um, you know, the way I look. I mean, and of course, people who frequent H Mart are not just uh, Korean or East Asian for that matter, but, you know, it's largely uh, East Asian patrons and feeling at once very comfortable in that space, but also at, you know, to the same end, very, very strange because, you know, I don't speak Korean. Uh, I know a handful of Korean words that I picked up from family friends and these weird Korean culture camps that were very trendy in the nineties. They might still be trendy today. Um, but because, uh, I have such a limited, um, cultural relationship to Korea, uh, those spaces in and of themselves are very odd to me. Um, and, So thinking about that experience uh, kind of ballooned into an entire country. (laughs) Like, I I can't even really fathom what that might be like, like walking around the streets of Seoul, for instance. Um, There's just a lot of anxiety there. And I don't think that I have the capacity to completely process that anxiety prior to it happening. Like, I just really think that at a certain point, I'm going to be on some plane heading to Korea and really kind of having to process things in the moment, but I just haven't gotten there yet. Um, And I think another element actually of what makes things strange is that, you know, of course this is a well trod, uh, topic and issue uh but i think that the rise in xenophobia and anti-asian violence and hate in the last calendar year though of course not uh isolated to the last calendar year i think has also complicated my relationship to asianness and therefore complicated my relationship to thinking about making a trip back um you know, what's sometimes I think in weird uh, pits of sadness during the year, I've felt so deeply resentful of the fact that I have no appreciable relationship to the cultural aspects of my Koreanness but will never be able to escape, you know, racism and xenophobia only because of the way I look, that there's no cultural aspect of my selfhood that, uh, cultural aspect of my selfhood that is, Korean I suppose there's of course a a cultural aspect of my selfhood that is Korean American and that Korean Americans often have very complicated relationships to their Koreanness um but uh it is it has just been a weird time I think and I think that you know after I realized that this trip wasn't going to happen and um after I kind of 
made some kind of peace with that, my thinking was rerouted to just thinking about my own positionality and relationship to Asianness and um and that has also just been a, a really interesting thing to be thinking about these last few months. It's so um, striking how much sort of unknowingness there's been for you with mm-hmm. these p- parental figures. Um, and I wonder, I don't know, how do you kind of conceptualize of that unknowingness and how it's affected your way of being in the world or your way of writing Um, especially with regard to like figures that are meant to be nurturing. I mean, it sounds like Mm -hmm. you have a really positive Mm -hmm. relationship with your adoptive mother, Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. least from what I'm inferring. And, and I don't know, it just, and so there's that, and that feels like in a way complicated too. Um, But I'm just, I guess I'm wondering how you feel especially as, you know, you're an adult and moving further into adulthood, how you sort of conceptualize of the overarching or like longer term effect on you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I do think that um, being adopted and then I also think generally having a relationship with a parent um, uh, from whom you are estranged it almost pushed me to narrate or create fable or kind of attempt to fictionalize whatever relationship that is unknown to me, if that makes sense. So in some way, I do think that my relationship to narrative and my relationship to prose and poetry for that matter is in some way undergirded by this desire to narrate or put words Mm -hmm. to that, which is deeply ineffable. Um, yeah, beyond my understanding, uh, either kind of forever or at least right now. It's it's almost as if there's fable created by a dearth of an understanding of your family. Sure. Um, and so I think that that has really informed that, that kind of um, lack of knowing or unknowability is something that has had a profound impact on not just my writing, but also my love of story and my love of language and my want to articulate uh, a particular feeling uh, or state of being. And, and, and I think that that has kind of stayed with me throughout my life in whatever way. Um, you say that these themes come up over and over again. And I guess I'm I'm interested in sort of how it feels like that has evolved or manifested for you in your work. Like if there's a way, um, I don't know, that that has, you feel that evolving or changing over time, even. As you know, because we, we've talked 
albeit briefly, about my relationship to genre. Um, You know, I started out being a fiction writer, uh, sensibly, and my MFA is in fiction. Um, But then, you know, but even then, I think that my relationship You're such a poet. (laughs) To me. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that, like, it, it's taken me a while to embrace that. Um, I'm still very allergic to lineation, but in all other ways, I think that, um, you know, my relationship to poetry is much stronger than my relationship to what I think of as fiction. Um, but, you know, early on, I really tried to fictionalize things. Like, I have an unfinished novel, Um that is in many ways about adoption and uh and I don't think I've completely uh abandoned it but it is something that I have a complicated relationship to because it's so fictionalized and feels almost like I'm holding my own narrative life at a distance like if I fictionalize it enough um and narrate it enough and kind of add enough flair and in some ways subvert the realities of my own life into some fictional space that it'll make more sense to me or something, which is really actually not true, at least for me. Rushi and I talked about that a little bit too, actually. I think I cut some of it, but um, I I started out as a fiction writer too and Uh started out writing novels or novellas. They were like shorter novels. And it was after like, you know, the more one of the more traumatic years of my life after losing three friends in a row and I um I think I did it because I needed to I couldn't tell or I couldn't write the true thing yet and I needed to be able to write something within like that got at the emotional register of the Mm -hmm. experience I was trying to get through but wasn't Mm -hmm. pointing toward it in a Mm. clear way and I like I've moved between these genres so much and go back and forth between them all the time but I'm always so so interested in how these function for people in on like a sort of subconscious or psychological or emotional level too as a writer yeah yeah I it's interesting actually now that I think about it you know I love so many kinds of poetry and I love so many poets and so many of the people whom I hold closest are writers and poets and it's interesting actually to think about the number of people who started in the ostensibly in the genre of fiction and then kind of slowly moved into a more poetic space and that might actually be an episode in and of itself just thinking about you know, that move uh, towards something that feels closer to, I don't know, uh, a more felt understanding of one's own relationship to writing. My, My writing has changed now, actually, in that I've been thinking a bit more about archival work and looking at originary documents and thinking about those documents relationship to my work. I have a bunch of my adoption documents and amidst all these documents, I actually found this old piece of construction paper. It's orange and it's written on in marker. And my mother actually 
it was an interview. She, uh, she created for me when I must have been, I don't know, maybe two or three. And um, on it, it says, so it's in her handwriting. And the first question is, what is adoption? And my answer is, it's when you go to the airport, get in an airplane, drive to the airport, find a new mother, and have a new mother and keep her forever. Um, And then where were you before the airport? And it says in an airplane, in Unyu, who's my birth mother, although actually I found out after the fact that my birth mother's name is actually not Unyu, it's Unkyung. Um, But I say Unyu, I think because you, my mother, I think, misread my adoption records because Korean familial names appear at the beginning of the name and not the end, but it's fine. Um, anyway, it says Unyu here. So where were you before the airport in an airplane and then in Unyu's uterus? And you were in Bima's uterus, my grandmother. Daddy was in Meme's uterus. And we all got together at the airport. <laughs> And my mother asked, was I adopted? And then I said, no, you were in Bima's uterus and then you popped out. Mm-hmm. And this last question is actually very sad to me, um, or the answer is sad. It's, what's the difference between being adopted and not being adopted? And I said, if you're not adopted, you're made. Your own mom keeps you. But the most interesting documents actually are my initial social history that I received from the Eastern Child Welfare Society. Um, and it lists my Korean name, with, which is Jung Hongsan. Um, and I've been told that Hongsan means wide or vast peacefulness. Mm-hmm. Um, And there's mention of my biological parents. And the wildest part of this document is actually that both of their names are uh, whited out. But because it's the original document, I can hold the document up to the light. I'm doing it now. And can read my birth parents' names through the whiteout. Oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, my... I can see their names really clearly. And um, it says they were both 22, um, both in college, they were unmarried. Um, and there's this entire narration of the backstory of why I was given up for adoption. <laughs> um, typed up here. Um, And it's odd, too, because there are written descriptions of their physical nature, which is bizarre because, of course, I've never seen pictures of my birth parents, but there's description of both of them. Um, And then it says the orphan status was, quote, abandoned by, and then next to the word mother, there's a check, which is particularly devastating to Mm -hmm. me. Um, and then there's a whole narration of like, 
my development, including my bowel movements. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It says... Um, she is fed 100 cc's of formula every three hours and awakens once for feeding during the night and sucks the bottle in good strength. When hungry, she cries. And when having a full stomach, she puts the nipple out. Don't know what that means. She burps without spitting up after feeding. Great job, me. She, um, moves the bowels once a day in good condition, when wet, she cries. If changed, she feels fine stretching out the legs. She likes the bath. Um, she cries loudly and is alarmed at a loud sound. And if soothed by foster mother, she stares at her at times and she follows a bundle of red wool with eyes little by little. Um, anyway, this goes on. <laughs> um and it's a, a wild record to have. I mean, like, also, I feel like very few people have that kind of record about themselves when they're little. Oh, totally. Or like a, a child. And you have that in lieu of other information about your parents or about your family. And yeah. That's what an odd sort of stand in for that. Totally. Wow. It's, it's bizarre. I think that the older I've gotten, I've had a more complicated relationship to the process of adoption generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, my feelings uh, surrounding transnational adoption um, have actually grown more contentious, actually. Yeah. Um, how, how does that affect your relationship with your adoptive family? <sighs> That's a really good question. I think that they're in transracial adoptive relationships. There is this kind of inextricable difference that will always remain. And there's always kind of a divide despite best intentions and deep familial love. There will always be the notion that an adoptive family will not understand um, in a real way that kind of loss and sense of isolation that comes from being raised in a place where physically you feel so different and distinct from those whom you call your family members. Um, And I don't think that that complicated relationship to the process of transnational adoption has necessarily disintegrated any relationships I've had with family members. Um, But it certainly made me think more about systemically kind of all of the issues surrounding transnational adoption. And I actually, it's weird. I feel like even in very progressive forward thinking spaces, I feel like that there needs to be a more rigorous conversation about um, the, the larger implications of what the entire adoption process looks like. At my most scathing, I would say that for me as an adopted person, I, while loving and accepting and being deeply grateful for uh, my family, I likewise do think that transnational adoption is still in some ways the colonialist project.
this conversation so far has kind of reminded me of in a correspondence I had with the writer Mary Kim Arnold right at the beginning of the pandemic. It actually, the pandemic hit the United States and we had already been corresponding. And now our conversation on the other end of things, uh, hmm. just a year later feels in some way complimentary. Uh, just in that we had a conversation about our relationship to Koreanness and our relationship to unknowing uh, and the prompt was given by Karen Anway Lee uh, and the prompt was considering translation as afterlife um, and we interpreted translation quite loosely here but in thinking about our Koreanness as a kind of translation and likewise thinking about what it means to be adopted. You know, we just had a really interesting conversation about feeling as though this life, the one we live in the United States as adopted people feels in some way like an afterlife or that there are multiple lives lived. Um, because it almost feels as though there's a weird death of a potential life that happens when one immigrates in this very specific way. You lose one kind of identity um, and you lose that initial, I guess, albeit very early sense of self mm -hmm. and then have to kind of reorient yourself to your own personhood, I guess, in a completely different space. Um, and also with this completely different language. Um, so I don't know, I was just, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this conversation and I like to kind of think about it as a weird kind of uh, complimentary um, dialogue. Yeah, I love that. I think that when I was a kid, maybe not insofar as thinking about, you know, an afterlife or thinking about the death of one life or, you know, whatever. But I do think that when I was young, and this continues to this day, I thought a lot about potential lives or mm -hmm. I guess in contemporary concepts like the multiverse, you know, like what would have happened. Um what would have happened had I stayed in Korea? What would have happened had I been adopted um, by a different family? Uh, what would have happened had my birth parents decided um, not to put me up for adoption? Uh, what would have happened had I, in whatever way, developed different language acquisition? Um, or had, you know, devoted time to learning Korean at a younger age. Uh, and then also the what if scenario, if the scenario is that I find out at some point in my life here that I have siblings, biological siblings, half siblings, um, or full siblings, um, what would happen if I 
met my birth parents or met members of my biological family. Um, So I think just this idea of potential and, you know, possible worlds or probable worlds or improbable worlds has always fascinated me. My mom used to say that when I was a kid and we would be driving, um, we would have a lot of conversations about everything. And my mantra almost in always in the car was, but what if, but what if this happened? What if this happened? Um, but what if, and it was so common or frame that my mom later on in my life talked about how exciting but also exhausting that that question was as a refrain um like thinking about like what if this were the case what could this mean um and I I don't know I think that that's just like always been a part of my thinking my process of thinking is what what would the world look like in the scenario that x y and z and I and I and I you know not necessarily to over-psychologize, but I do think that that is deeply embedded in just like what I think about all the time because of all these unknowns in my life. Yeah. Do you feel like that? I don't know. Does that, I guess one thing I wanted to ask you is because you've had all these different types of sort of ambiguous loss, I'm wondering if you have like I don't know if you've allowed yourself to feel those or if there are ways that you've found to let yourself like really register those feelings sort of somatically or emotionally to let yourself process through them. And I think, I guess when I think about grief and the ways in which trauma around death and loss has manifested in my life, Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's often resulted in this like real difficulty of, of locating myself in the present. And I think like, yeah, like either existing in a sort of space where I'm fixated on the past or this relationship with a person who's gone or being just profoundly anxious about potential losses. Yeah. I wonder how you, if there are ways that you've found to presence yourself and, or like just how you've grieved these really complicated losses, especially when it isn't necessarily connected to like a finite or like final end point or clear end, you know? I think I'm always trying to find a better practice to think about ways to mourn and ways to process and ways to move through these kinds of, in some ways, complicated or ambiguous losses. And I think the, this isn't somatic, but it is certainly just a thing that I need to remind myself of often is I ought not try to conceive of an end point Mm -hmm. (laughs) um that I think I at the very least have come to the realization that there will no there will be no point in my life wherein I am no longer affected by the things I'm affected by now grieving while it looks different for everyone is not a process that 
ends for me specifically, but it does kind of re it does reanimate itself in different ways. I think throughout the course of my life, this risks oversimplification, but I do think that in talking with you and talking with other friends who have dealt with very distinct, obviously, but deep grief and loss in their lives. I think uh, a thread that runs through all of us weirdly is uh, a want for ritual. Yeah. Um, And uh, the importance of ritual and habit and practice that those quotidian aspects of our lives have deep value. And I think that there's a stability in that practice, obviously, of course, but I think there's also the idea that those rituals and practices are kind of a developed individual cultural system that it's that those small acts are in some way like a cultural comfort and I say cultural insofar as you know I think that often culture is is defined by way of ritual so religious and secular traditions are often very beholden to like specific cultural elements. And I think that there's a deep stability and safeness felt in developing individual cultural traditions. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Oh, Um, totally. And, and I thought about this a lot too, because just in returning to kind of my own experience, you know, when, because I, I don't have any relationship to a culturally Korean experience and was raised in a largely secular household. In some ways, I felt a dearth of tradition or cultural repetition. Um, And in lieu of that practice, especially as it relates to times of mourning, you know, I think that I look to that. I look for some, not necessarily substitute, but I look for some kind of tradition or habit or ritual. And, and I think that those, those habits are really, really important. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that you said it better than I did. I think I, um, I think that is a lot of it. Like, in lieu of a sort of religious background or religious, um, you know, uh, affiliation, I think, as I get older, just really allowing myself to create my own sort of whatever that is, you know, ritual, Mm -hmm. or yeah, like, sort of tethering something that tethers to time and place. And yeah, I think that 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 is absolutely and well, and to me, I mean, I think that's where writing honestly kind of originated for me too like 
that was writing as a sort of stabilizing force was only and and writing as a habitual act was only something I started doing after loss you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so I think yeah like that kind of practice of ritual or whatever yeah whatever that looks like started for me as writing and and the process of writing and has just kind of evolved in times when you're grieving is there a a period where you feel like you can't write prior to the period where you write or is there kind of an immediacy is there an immediate desire to write kind of when that grief is most intense and most felt or is there like a kind of um, holding period Mm. prior? I mean, I think it kind of depends. I feel like the person who died more recently was also a poet and our relationship was very much around poetry. And I think like poems, little poems, they were little tiny ones, but they were happening pretty immediately after they died. And I think, you know, it took me about maybe a year to try and write about them in prose but Mm. I think the poems were happening pretty immediately Um, though you wrote really beautifully about that loss yeah in 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 prose and I do yeah think that that (sighs) I think that takes time yes yeah right that's what I was gonna say that I think that that kind of um I want to say essayistic, but in a non-pejorative way, kind of like, uh, yeah, essayistic approach to articulating that personal loss takes a really long time. Yeah. Um, Which is, I think, part of why poems are such a great form, you know, because I think that they can hold, like the poems I wrote right after they died had less to do with them as a person and more to do with the experience of grief, you know? Right, right. Right. Yeah. It's like not necessarily reflection so much as kind of a distillation of very, of a very specific felt immediate moment or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that isn't to say that poems can't also reflect. Um, sure. But I do, <laughs> but I do think that there's, there can be like a really raw immediacy to a poem that um, is a very, different temporal space from something like a longer form essay um yeah or something like that uh it's interesting though that you say that you write all the time because I think I write often but I have a really contentious relationship to writing because I don't I don't always feel good when I write like, I, and, mm-hmm. and good is a weird word, but I, I, for a very long time, I used to say that I hated writing, <laughs> even though I did it, uh, that I, that I had like this really, really combative relationship to my own writing practice. Um, and, and that I never felt like I hit a flow or that I had some kind of revelatory euphoric writing experience oftentimes it was really painful to me and really frustrating 
And the only reason I mentioned that is because I think it is because so much of what I write about is really difficult to feel and think about. And, yeah. and that I often find myself relatively exhausted after like a sustained writing period. Mm-hmm. And so I think something I'm trying to reconsider now, especially as I'm attempting to finish this manuscript, I, I need to reconsider my own feelings about writing because it is something that at once comes naturally to me as a practice, but likewise feels really bad sometimes. Yeah. Um, and it's almost as if like I do it in spite of how I feel while I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even, I mean, maybe it's c- akin to catharsis, but I don't think it's catharsis. It's something different. It's, um, it's something and it's and it's also not compulsion it's it's something (sighs) i feel like there's a certain kind of devotion that Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. also like not necessarily like it doesn't feel good always to have devotion for something totally yeah well and i think when you're writing about i feel this way about those essays it's hard to write those and it's hard to do the work of getting to the place where you're actually saying the true thing. Right. And I think that that is something I am just only beginning to understand how to do. And of course the truth is like fluid and changes all the time. And I think that's the hard thing about writing about these things too, because as I change the, my understanding of, the event changes my understanding of myself when I wrote this essay changes you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it makes it very difficult the whole anyway I yeah I feel like I'm trying to get back into that book right now and it's really hard right to know how to even begin right and because your perspective is constantly changing I also think that it complicates your relationship to what you have already written or at least that's the case for me like I will sit down to write and as one does reads over what one has written last and inevitably I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking then? Like, how do I get back there? And I think that actually a lot of my struggle is trying to access the cognitive state I had occupied previously Mm -hmm. and inevitably failing and then trying to marry my previous cognitive and emotional state to my current one it's a failure that's like always a failure but that's okay but I just it's just like the, the that process of being like now things have changed in my mind and I know where I was to a certain extent when I started this last but now what is the connective tissue between what I was thinking then and what I was writing then even if it was just like the previous day and what I'm feeling and thinking now Warp of a fabric. In the hoped-for future, gulls swarm the sky to announce the ship's arrival. The ship abuts the harbor, and there in the crowd stands the mother. 
The daughter waits by the pier. The crowd deboards. She has waited for this meeting, an actual life's delayed recommencing. It does happen this way sometimes. Sometimes the dock is indeed the locus of return. Fish rot thus lingers in the nose. A single reunion is a pinprick of light spilled from the clumsy planet. Zoomed out, the whole globe shimmers and dims and shimmers, each refracts upon the next. The mother waves, hand high in the white air, and her coat sleeve catches the breeze, balloons like a bell, deflates and slips down the arm toward the pit. Later, the son will bonk about tectonically until the mother is truly dead, and then, further off, the daughter is truly dead, but now, now in the unrecognizable moment, they're here. They're here, close enough to recognize the physical self in the other. Same wideness of the face, connoting generosity. Similar dynamic brows. Staggered stages of aging. All this actual life in the wake of several decisions. Someone saying hi, but neither mother nor daughter has spoken. She could walk toward the moment of her reckoning. It's the big fear. Too little time to root around in the other's hope, which is never enough. What a benevolent monstrosity. Nothing bright. Nothing like relief. What is grief in reverse? It's the illumination of something immune to light. The daughter shades her eyes with a flattened hand as though she's been afforded the chance many times in their pasts. They've been this close before. And then the widest birth imaginable. Only the parent remembers their first closeness, their first departure. Only the parent knows the child's first sound. Only the child knows the parent's kindest interior. The sea sloshes around in its container. The gulls careen for their meal. The crowd disperses. The mother walks the length of the pier. The pier's shadows broaden. The daughter, having been able to eat, wants nothing but water. The daughter stands as though she's forgotten a deeply held ceremony. As they've known only distance, they're unsure of how to cross it. They can just approach. Thank you for listening to SEMA. Initiated in 2018 as a reading and workshop series in Boise, Idaho, SEMA aspires to nurture deep attention and connection as means for change. To join the mailing list or share your insights, please email sema.readingseries at gmail.com. The song in the background is by Teal Gardner. You can find a link to more of her music in the notes.